You know what? I am a pizza lover. I love to have an incredible piece of pizza. That's right. <laughs> last week, my wife and I, we were up north for a wedding. Told you a little bit about that in last week's sermon. On the rehearsal night, they had Lou Malnati's pizza. Lou Malnati's, yes. So for those of you who don't know what it is, let me explain it to you. As you take this giant deep pan pizza and you begin to cut through it, the cheese is so warm and so gooey that as you're running the knife through, it just sort of sticks to it and pulls and stretches. So as you cut that piece and you begin to lift it up, it's all connected together. You know what I'm talking about? And as you're lifting it, the smell of it just starts to hit you. The aroma is like amazing. The underneath the cheese is this tomato sauce that has, I don't know what they have in it. It is the most sweet, but not too sweet, tangy, but not too tangy tomato sauce with a little bit of chunks in it. And that's what's underneath. And it's sitting on top of a crust that is like buttery, tender. It's a good thing it's not 1130, right? I don't know what the 11 o'clock crew's going to do. This buttery crust that's just firm enough, but just soft enough that as you're cutting through and eating it, you don't feel like you're eating cardboard, but you don't feel like you're eating wet bread. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like the most amazing piece of pizza. And then they put just enough sausage on so that you enjoy the flavor of meat. You don't feel like you're eating a meat sandwich, you know? It's just the perfect slice of pizza. And as you begin to enjoy these, you realize you're now on piece number three and you've eaten half the pan. And so between the two of us, we ate the equivalent of about a pan of pizza and we go rolling back to our hotel room, barely able to think, let alone eat another thing. You know what I'm talking about? We love pizza. Can you tell I've had Lou Malnati's pizza before? Okay. We are in the middle of a series called Eyewitness. Watch God work. It's all about knowing and understanding who Jesus Christ is and then being able to share him with someone else. Let me tell you something. We need to know him deeply and richly. We need to have enjoyed him at the most intense levels if we're going to be able to share him with someone else. So the lame example is Lou Malnati's pizza. We need to be able to know him in a way where we have experienced and been thrilled with and then be able to share that out. That's part of eyewitness. You know, today we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 2. The ushers are going to be coming forward. They've got Bibles in their hands. We're going to be walking through Jonah chapter 2. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you, okay? Jonah chapter 2, this question is answered. How can I be changed by Jesus Christ to make an impact in this world? How can I be changed so that I can make a difference. Eyewitness. That's what we're going to be looking at today in Jonah chapter 2. How can I be changed? Let's start out with the first point, and then we'll dive into a little bit of the detail. Appreciate God's hand in rescuing you. Appreciate God's hand in rescuing you. That was really Jonah's first point in this change moment for him. Okay? So let's start out. We look in chapter 1, verse 17. It says... And the Lord appointed. And the Lord appointed. So we have Jonah and we have God working with Jonah. 
Now let's go back a little bit and let's remember last week, for those of you who weren't with us and for those of you who may have let it slip your mind a little bit, here's the Jonah chapter one in five seconds or less kind of story, all right? First, we have Jonah, a prophet living in Israel. We'll call Israel this area. Remember how we made this Israel last week? So Jonah's living up in northern Israel here. God comes to him and says, I need you to go to Nineveh. In other words, he just said, I need you to go to one of the most messed up cities there is. They are in to horrible sin. And I need you to go to them and I need you to tell them, knock it off. That's what I need you to do. But here's the clarity of it. First of all, Nineveh up around and down the Tigris River is about 500 miles away. So first of all, I need you to walk 500 miles. That was one of the requests. Second, I need you to go to a city steeped in sin and make clear to them that they need to knock that off. And third, remember, this is the city that tends to kill people that tell them they have to change. That's what I need you to do, okay? So Jonah's answer is, thanks but no thanks, and he bolts. He heads for Joppa and out into the sea to try to get to Tarshish. His plan, let's see if I can get away from the very presence of God. That's his plan. Not a good plan, but okay, our prophet's losing it a little bit. And he's out in the middle of the sea trying to escape God. God begins to say, yeah, you're not going to be able to escape. I know you and I love you. And it's time for me to bring you home. And he brings a great storm. And that storm is so great that the sailors are freaking out. They don't even know what's going to happen. Their boat is bending and snapping and creaking. The boat is pitching up and down. And in the midst of it, they go to their little G gods. And they try to pray. Nothing happens. And so they end up figuring out through a sequence of events, including casting of lots, that Jonah's the man that's got the answer. And in talking to him, they find out that Jonah serves the God who's the God of the sea and the land. And in that moment, they recognize you worship the God of the sea and the sea is about ready to kill us. Your God has a problem with you. You need to get together and get this thing figured out. And so they ask what they need to do. Jonah says, you need to throw me in the water. So they end up through much angst, trying to row back to Joppa and not being able to get there, grabbing him, throwing him in the sea. And in that moment, the sea that has been wildly death-oriented calms down. And they drop to their knees and they worship the living God. The sailors came to know him. Even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, the sailors came to know him. And that's where we pick up today. Jonah has just been pitched into the sea. And this is what happens. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Summary statement here, okay? This is the summary. So he was swallowed by a great fish and he was there for three days and three nights. Okay, a few things we need to understand. First, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God sent or hurled a great storm. So first the great storm. Now he's appointed a great fish. When God's at work, great things are happening. Okay? That's the one thing we can take from it. God is sending great things. Large scale things. First the tumult, the storm, and now the fish. The fish swallows up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. One thing we need to understand is in that culture, three days and three nights was the time period that they would use to guarantee that someone was actually dead. Three days and three nights. 
You see, they believed that the spirit would exit and travel around and had a chance to come back. Part of this was through experience as they saw people actually die or what they thought was dead and come back to life. And it was because they actually weren't dead. And so they gave three days and three nights to guarantee. So part of this statement is enough that he could have been dead. That's what's being said here. Okay. Three days and three nights swallowed by the fish and sitting in the fish's stomach. Now we pick up Jonah. How would Jonah be responding in the middle of this? Check this out. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. That's right. Still in there saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. He answered me. Dude, you got swallowed by a fish. Are you aware of what's happening? And he says, yes, I'm aware. Let me explain to you how great this is. Look at what happens. He says, not only did I get swallowed, not only did the Lord answer, he says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. This word Sheol typically means grave. So basically out of the place where I was almost ready to die. Notice the play on words, the word belly there. There's the belly of the grave, but then there's the belly of the fish. One was his place of death. One is his place of salvation. That's what's going on. The play on the word belly. You know, as we read, you remember this, we've talked about this a number of times, but in Hebrew, when people begin to get very poetic, they use a phrasing style. They put one set against another set. They call it parallelism, right? So we're going to see it again here. Here we go. Jonah's getting poetic as he's praying. And he starts locking phrases one after another in parallelism. So his first phrase, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. The second phrase, out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Do you hear it? In the midst of my pain and agony, in the midst of my distress, what was my distress? Well, I was running from God. And he decided that that was something that needed to be dealt with. And in the midst of dealing with me, I was thrown into the water. But not just thrown. He'll get into more detail about what that looks like. In the end, I was swallowed by a fish. And now I can definitely say, God answers prayer. What? What are you talking about? How is that an answer to prayer? It sounds like things are getting worse. What do you mean? Glad you asked. So he keeps going on. He says at the end of, he answered me. And then he says, you heard my voice. We need to basically make sure we understand very clearly. He says, the reason it got good is because God's hearing me. God is with me. God knows what's going on. And he's beginning to work in my life. Why are things getting better? Not because circumstances look better, but because God Almighty is at work in my life and he's hearing my prayer and my call. We serve a living God and we can experience a mighty God and he answers prayer in our lives. You know, there was a Native American tribe. They... uh Their rite of passage for the 13-year-old boys was to take a 13-year-old boy on their birthday, blindfold them, and walk them several miles away from the tribe and leave them there overnight by themselves. Take the blindfold off. Now, this is the first time the 13-year-old has been away from family or tribe or friends 
in 13 years. It's all about immersing with family and friends until that day when you're left alone in the woods overnight. Can you imagine that moment in the dark when you're starting to hear branches move in a certain way and they rub against each other and they squeak or you hear the snap of some twigs and you wonder what animal is moving through this forest and is close to me. You hear the rustling of leaves. That had to be a pretty scary night for that boy. And as the dawn broke in the morning, I can only imagine that had to be some of the most awesome sunrise for that kid ever. You know what I mean? It's like, finally, it's here. I've waited all night. And as the sun rose, he could see the trail that he was supposed to take back. And the first steps the son took on the trail, he would see a figure standing in front of him. A man. His father was there all night long. Just far enough away that he had to wrestle with what it would be like to be in the woods by himself. But close enough that if any issue were to come, he had bow and arrow ready, his child was safe. Welcome to our God. How true is that of what Jonah was going through? He was in the dark. He was in that moment. He was being tested with everything he had. But God was right there with him. And Jonah found out as the dawn broke, as he awakened to what was happening, and he cried out with all he had, Father God, please forgive me. Save me if you will. I know I've been wrong. I want to lean on you. And in that moment, he was on the path and he saw his God right before him, always there, always protecting, right there with him. Appreciate God's hand in rescuing you. What is it you're going through? What circumstance are you struggling with that feels like the darkness of the woods, that feels like the deep of the sea, but God is right there with you. We need to recognize his hand in our lives. We need to recognize his presence right there with us. All too often we make the night much longer than the night needs to be, don't we? All too often as we struggle with our stuff, we just continue to keep struggling with our stuff alone, by ourselves, refusing to take a step out on that path, refusing to see God right there with us. Jonah's challenge in first two verses are simply this. Please be thankful for God at work in your life and look for his hand rescuing you. Look for his hand rescuing you. He's right there. If you don't see it, then you're looking at your problems too much. It's time to look for the problem solver, not the problem. Jonah's first point, be thankful. God is rescuing Are you ready to be thankful? It's a tough one. The bigger the circumstance, the easier it is to whine about that circumstance, isn't it? Oh, come on. Isn't it? Right, that's where we get, right? I mean, come on, my problem is big. You should see my problem. And then we start describing our problem to everybody. You know what I mean? And then we become problem describers. That's not what we need to be. We need to be problem solvers through God Almighty, not problem describers. Don't take your time to moan about the problem. Take your time to find the Almighty and His hand at work with you. Okay? That's the first step, is appreciate 
God at work. He's right there. Lean on him. Number two, we need to accept the circumstances as God's purposeful action. We need to accept the circumstances as God's purposeful actions. You know, all too often we look at the circumstances and we think, I can't believe so-and-so did this to me. I can't believe this happened. But the reality is, it's God at work in the midst of our lives, helping to shape us and train us and challenge us and move us. Let's see Jonah's view of this. He starts out, verse 3, For you cast me into the deep. He's talking to God. Remember, this is a prayer. You cast me into the deep. Really? Let's take a look back at chapter 1, verse 15. What does it say? So they, the sailors, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. But he says, you cast me into the sea. What's he recognizing? He's recognizing that these sailors were working under the hand of the sovereign God. He's in charge of all. He's in charge of even mankind. And as the sailors did what they did, God was meeting it out. God was allowing it to happen. God cast me into the sea. That's what happened. God at work in my life. You put me in the water. That's my view, God. I don't care what agent you used. You put me in the water. That's how I see it. He goes one step further. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. So you got a picture. When Jonah was thrown in, he wasn't just kind of treading water on top. You know, and then everything calms down and he's just hanging out on top. That's not what happened, okay? Look what happens to him. He was cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded him. Are you feeling it? He's beginning to go down in the middle of this huge storm as he's tossed into these 15 to 30 foot waves, whatever size they were, he began to go down, down, down. That's where he was headed. And in the midst of going down, holding his breath, trying to survive, it says in verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. In that moment, he felt as though he had found a place where God was not. He felt as though the presence of God had left him here. At least at the bottom of the sea, there is no God. That's where he was at. And then he began to wrestle with himself. And he uses the powerful word, yet. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. I'm praying to the almighty God. I'm looking for that path. I'm having a hope that he's going to remain merciful. May my God look upon me. May my God look upon me even in my wrong. How often do we feel that way? At the end of a day, at the end of a week, at the end of a month where we look back and we go, I just keep making the same mistake. I just keep doing that same thing that's got me gripped. Why am I doing it that way? I must be driven away. It's Jonah's final conclusion. Maybe I'm driven away from him and there's no hope. I need to throw my whole self back into his merciful arms. At the end of verse 4 there, it says, upon your holy temple. Who do we know who owns a temple? Do you own a temple? Kings own temples. The sovereign king of the universe owns a temple. He began to lean upon the king of creation and said, your temple, your righteous, holy temple, 
That's my hope. I'm hoping that my God, my merciful God, will look upon me again. Now he's in those waves, he's in these floods, and he begins in true Hebrew poetry style to say, let me make it really clear what it was like, okay? So he's given us the overview. Now let me tell you the details. He starts out in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. I began to go under it. The water came over. I thought I was done for. I was about to die. And as the water came over and I was going down, I was not sure what was going to happen next. And he says, the deep surrounded me. Okay? So you imagine he's going all the way down to the very bottom. The deep is surrounding him. Now in that moment, remember the sailors are on top and they've just thrown him off the boat, right? And as he hits the water and goes down, everything calms. So why doesn't he just come back up? Why doesn't he just float back to the surface and catch some air? Because God's in control, that's why. So weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Are you hearing this? In this moment, this is a time where he could have said, I have to tell you something. It just got worse and worse and worse. And I'm not sure what God is doing. But instead he said, you need to understand how my God was at work. As I went down, I mean really down. I mean all the way down. Then I got wrapped up and held right there in the weeds. Can you imagine seaweed? Have you ever been swimming in like a lake and you get the, like the seaweedy kind of stuff on you? You know what I'm talking about? And you get the willies, you know, you get the, and you're trying to get that stuff off. You know what I mean? It's wrapped around his head. Can you experience, like it's in your face, man. He's got that all around him and he can't get out and he's pulling back and he's down at the bottom. Where is he? It says, at the roots of the mountains. What a great description, isn't it? So you look at a mountain and it comes down and right at some point the water comes out from it, but it keeps going down, right? And so there's the roots of the mountains way down here, all the way at the bottom of the water. That's where he is, tied up in seaweed. Are we seeing it? You got the visual? Just imagine yourself holding your breath for a minute, minute and a quarter, wrapped up in seaweed at the bottom of the water. And our first thought is, praise God. Right? This is a scary moment. And he's crying out. He says, the water's closed in to take my life. The deep surrounded. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed me up forever. The sandbars, the water that breaks so that it's hitting the island lightly, but it's hitting those bars heavily, and he's just beyond the bar and all the way down, closed in by the land, water's over him, seaweed wrapped around him, hopeless. God has basically said, you're trying to run from me. It's not going to work. We need to have a talk. I need your attention. Does he get his attention? Oh, yeah, he gets his attention. And in that moment, it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. You brought up my life from the pit. From down here, my life was saved. How? Well, you're swallowed by a fish. You know, it just dawned on me this week as I was looking at it. The fish was probably going after the seaweed. I mean, it doesn't say that, but he's all wrapped up in this. The very thing that's trapping him is probably the very thing that's so enticing to this fish, right? And it comes in and grabs him all wrapped in seaweed and takes him up to the top and catches air and begins to do this over and over again as this fish is living and surviving. And Jonah is now surviving for days 
in the belly of this fish. Now, I do want you to notice, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish uh, 40 seconds, and then he started praying to God. That's not what it says, does it? It says he was there three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. So this prayer we're looking at is three days and three nights. He needed some cooking time. That's, he's sitting in the belly, and he's just hanging out, and he's starting to figure out what is going on. This is his night of trying to figure things out. What's happening? Who is my God? What is my position with him? Which way am I headed? How am I going to manage this? How often do we end up in circumstances where within 30 seconds we should have figured out, oh, that's the way I need to head with God. And instead we take days and days and weeks because we want it to be about us. We want what we want. We want it our way, in our time. We really aren't interested in serving God and his solution. We're interested in our solution. And so we keep hanging on, hoping we can find that moment, right? That's Jonah. At the end of three days, he's finally grasped it. He's finally grasped. I need to be serving my God. I'm in a moment where I'm running and he's giving me the privilege of seeing his hand at work. I need to be working with him, not against him. And in that moment, he begins to cry out to a creator God who spoke and the world came into existence. To a creator God who moves and the winds blow. To a creator God who owns the sea, who owns the land, who owns the sailors and their movements and their motions. To a sovereign God who is in charge of all. That is who Jonah came to meet in the belly of the whale. What a great moment for him. We could look at this and go, that sounds horrible. It was a punishment. He was being manipulated. He... But really what was happening is he was brought to his own end. He was brought to a point where he could see what life would be like if he was in control of himself. And he gets to show him, God gets to show himself and say, this is my value. This is who I am. This is how in control I am. You want to know the most powerful being in the universe. Jonah, come to know me now. The prophet was finally getting introduced to the true sovereignty of our God. We need to accept the circumstances we're in as God's purposeful action. How often is God trying to get our attention and let us know that something needs to change? How often do we say, why does that keep happening? When we should say, why does that keep happening? Do you know what I'm saying? Same question, but all of a sudden I'm trying to figure out, instead of what jerks are against me, it's more, what does God want my attention for? All too often, the circumstances we're in are all about shaking and getting our attention. Are you aware that God wants your attention? He does. What circumstances are you in? Right now, a lot of us are in some tough ones. What are your circumstances? Are they like Jonah at the bottom of the sea, wrapped with seaweed? You feel like it's about done? It's time to cry out to God with all you've got. Accept that he's working in your life with all you have. You serve the mighty God of the universe. And he's looking to work in your life. What Jonah was getting was an introduction 
to the powerful relationship you could have with Christ. You have the same opportunity. Are you ready to give up your circumstance and cry out to him? Do you have what it is? Think about it for just a second. Get that circumstance. Get ready to write it down. Whatever you need to do. This is the thing that I need to give to God. Thank you, Lord, that you're at work in me. May I lean on you with all I have. I'm accepting your hand at work in my life. That's the second step. If we want to change, if we want to be used by him, if we want to see him work in our lives and through our lives so that we can touch and help change another, we're going to first need to be thankful. We're going to second need to be accepting of God's hand in our lives. And then third, we need to acknowledge him as Lord of our life. We need to acknowledge him as Lord of our life. This is so huge. It's one thing to say, hey, I see God. Yeah, he's doing this. He's doing that. He's controlling in here and there. And I see him moving. And... But it's another thing to say, I want you as my God. I want to lean on you with all of my life. I want to acknowledge you with all that I have. As we look here, verses 7 through 10, we see Jonah take that turn. He says, when my life was fainting away, when I was dying, when I was about at wit's end, I remembered the Lord. Is that classic? I remembered the Lord. Now, I know what he's trying to say. He's saying, that's when I finally turned to him and looked to him. But what a way to say it, right? I remembered. Oh, I wonder if I should think about God, right? It, after all that's been going on with this huge storm, with the fish, with all the rest. Now I remembered. Now I'm turning to him. He says, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He was heard. God answers our very cries for help. Verse 8. Here's the hope statements now. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is actually saying literally, those who pay regard to vain worthlessness or nothingness. That's what it actually says. Vain nothingness. If you're leaning on anything other than God, you're leaning on vain nothingness. There is great hope. In a living God, there is no hope in a little G God. It is vain nothingness. It is worthlessness. It is idols. Distractions from the main God, from the capital G God, the one and only living God. And he says, I feel for them because they're missing out. I was leaning on myself. I was running my own way. What a vain nothingness. I had no hope of steadfast love. We serve a God of hesed, loving kindness. We serve a God who loves so deeply, who wants to move so richly that he wants to touch you and change you for a lifetime. He wants you to know him so passionately and so intimately and so personally that you can't help but say, there is nothing worth knowing more than my God. That is who I want to know. Nothing more than him. He is mighty, but he is personal. And he is gentle and he is moving in my life. I want to know my God so richly and so deeply. That's where my hope lies in his personal love, in his personal love. And in verse nine, he follows up. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I'm turning to my mighty God. I'm turning to Yahweh. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Are you hearing it? Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Not salvation belongs to some higher power. Just pick one. Right? That's what the world likes to teach right now. But it's not about personal efforts. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The God who created with the spoken word. Salvation belongs to Jonah's God, Yahweh. And in the midst, you find this awesome opportunity of a personal relationship that is promised to have joy eternal. Joy. I don't know if I know what that word is. A little side note, John and I were talking to a friend probably four years ago. I was in ministry at the time. We were out to lunch. The three of us were talking and she had been uh, a Christian for uh, most of her life. She had trusted in Jesus Christ as a young child. She was a missionary for 30 years. And she looked at us and with tears in her eyes, she said, I don't know how to have the joy. How do I have joy? And you know, over the next few months, I went through a bunch of studying because honestly, you don't throw quips and quotes at a 30-year missionary. You know what I mean? You, you really go, hey, if she doesn't have it, then there's something I need to learn too. Let's sit down together. And over the next few months, I studied through things on joy and what does it mean? I'll just tell you this. We're going to be studying it in the fall on one, one of our Sundays. But joy comes by abiding with him. John chapter 15. Joy comes. A valued relationship with him is what brings joy. A personal relationship of living life with him. Knowing how he thinks. Knowing what he wants. Knowing how he works. And every day being excited to know him more. Begins to pour into us in ways we can't imagine or explain. So if you're sitting on the outside and you're looking in going, I don't know, it sounds kind of cold. I'm telling you, you haven't experienced it yet. That's the best thing I can say. It's time to meet the creator. It's time to meet our God personally passionately, deeply, and be satisfied for all eternity with a joy we cannot explain. It's bigger than circumstances. That's why when you're going through a tough moment and people look and go, how can you be happy in this? Oh, I'm not happy. Happy is circumstantial. I am joyful. I serve a God who's at work in my life. And I don't know what he's trying to do, but I'm learning as I go. My God at work in me. That is the value of knowing him. We accept him working in us. We acknowledge him as Lord in our life. There is no better place than to be passionate about knowing him. I mean passionate about knowing him. That is what fulfills and serves. Get ready to let go. You're going to have to let go of self. Because that's what we cling to tightly until we go after him. If you're clinging on to something, it's either him or it's all about you. Get ready to let go. You know, we uh, had a friend uh, a couple years back who asked us to come with her to her grandparents' place. So I told this story in the back in the fall a little bit, but it's a really a fitting story for here. She asked us to show up at her grandmother's place and share with her about who Christ was. She had a bunch of questions. So we went over there for dinner, and her grandma was in her 80s, somewhere around there, and had some questions. And so we sat down to dinner with our kids and we talked and we laughed and we joked and it went on for a couple of hours of talking and hearing her stories of the area and our stories of how we got into ministry. And she got up at one point and dismissed herself from the living room. And I look over at our friend and I go, does she, does she have questions? I mean, I've asked a couple of times and she's not asking. So 
If she doesn't have questions, we're great with that. There's no reason to force anything. And she goes, I don't know. Let me make it clear that you're the pastor. She may not catch that. (laughs) So she walks back in the room and she goes, hey, grandma, he's the pastor. Like it doesn't fit at all, but she just said it. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't in context. Just say it loudly. And she goes, oh, really? Well, then come sit next to me. So she calls me up close and sets a chair. I mean, we were about a foot apart. And she says, I have questions for you. And she starts going through these questions one by one by one. And the biggest question she had was, I don't understand. I was taught as a kid that Jesus is not God. So why would I trust in him? That doesn't even make sense. I should trust in God. And I said, well, what if I showed you from scripture that Jesus is God? She said, well, then I'd have to do what he says. And I said, well, then let's look and see what the scripture says, okay? So we went to a couple of passages we went to Exodus three fourteen, where God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, my personal name is I am. That's who you say sent you. When I'm sending you back to Egypt, you say the I am sent me. And then we flip forward to John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're challenging him and they're saying, you know what, how would you even know that that's true? And he says, look, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, either Jesus needs grammar lessons, right? And he should have said, before Abraham was, I was. Or Jesus is making a statement. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And claims the very personal name of God. In that moment, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. That's the next verse. They were very serious about grammar. Is that what's going on? No. They recognize the claim. He's saying, I'm God. And they said, you're dead. Nobody claims that. And they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus basically disappears through the crowd. I said, do you see what's happening? Jesus claimed to be God himself. And she goes, oh my. Then I need to be doing something about this. And I said, well, what if I walk you through and show you exactly what he's asking to have done? She said, that's fine. We went through Romans 3.23. All of us, we've come up short. We've made our mistakes. And by pulling away, we're in a bad spot. What bad spot? Romans 6, 23. That we all are in a position of eternal separation from God. And I looked at her and I said, do you understand? She goes, yeah, that's not good. I said, but the gift of God is eternal life, the end of Romans 6, 23. Then we talked about faith in him, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You just need to trust in his shed blood You need to ask for forgiveness of sins and be ready to turn and head a new direction after him. You need to acknowledge him as Lord in your life. It's time to say salvation is from the Lord. It's time to say that he's changing me and his shed blood on the cross. That's what it's all about. Jesus is alive and he is God and I'm giving him my life. Are you ready to do that? And she said, yeah. I'm 80-something years old. I better get it done now. I said, well, then let's go. And so I walked her through a prayer where she basically accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. My question is, are you in that same boat today? Are you a person that right now is going, I'm not sure I know what I should be doing. I'm not sure which way I should be leaning. God works. He brings us through questions and circumstances and trials to bring us to a point where we come to understand that our God saves, that our God loves, 
that our God reaches into our life to make a difference for all eternity. We serve the risen Savior, and he loves us with all he's got. That's a great story to tell. Amen? And knowing that and experiencing that and touching that with all you've got and being able to share it out with another, what a privilege. My only request to you is this. If you have not experienced that, now's the day. Right now, right here. Let's embrace who he is personally, passionately, right now.